Welcome on in to Studio 2. Hello, everybody. I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. I'm Cherry Gregg. Happy Tuesday. Sure. Happy Tuesday. You know, I got to take my car to get washed today because it Why has that? a lot of road salt all <laughs> over it. Really? From dealing with... <laughs> it's got stained. Uh, it's, yeah. got, it's so stained and it looks really gross after all the snow we've dealt with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm kind of excited about hearing more about road salt today in our newsmaker segment. That's our first interview today. We're talking about road salt, not uh, what it does to your car, but what it does to yeah, the environment. Yeah, environment. <laughs> and, I, and my mind was a little bit blown after reading a little bit more, so I, I can't wait till we, we hear a, from John we, Jackson. Special guest from the Stroud yeah. Water Research Center. That's later this segment. Mm-hmm. Then our middle segment today, we're talking with uh, WHYY alum Ooh. and author, Benjamin Harold. It's weird to call him Benjamin. I know him as Ben Harold. Mm-hmm. Um, our former colleague has a new book out today. Ooh, it's Pub Day. day. Uh, it's called Disillusioned Five Families and the Unraveling of America's Suburbs. It's a topic I've been interested in for a long time. I really feel like we have just sort of collectively missed mm-hmm. the demographic socioeconomic changes happening happening in American suburbs. They, yeah. They're so different than the idea that people have in their head about the suburbs. And Ben's book dives into that and, uh, and does so in ways that are illuminating, at times painful. Yeah. There's a lot to discuss. Yeah, a lot to discuss there. And I'm really excited about our third segment. What's the third segment? Uh, we have a special guest, Aziza Schuler. She's a news anchor here in Philadelphia. And I happened to see her on screen a few months ago, mm-hmm. um, bald. Bald. And apparently she revealed herself as having alopecia and is walking boldly in this world. So you just sort of saw her in passing. You I said, saw her on, pa- on the screen. Yeah. I was like, oh my goodness. And so she's going to share her story with us, um, her journey with dealing with alopecia and sharing it with the world. Very inspiring. Uh, doing that on television. Oh, you're doing really, it on television really sharing in front it. of yeah. yeah, the community. Amazing. So, uh, yeah, we're going to go to our news. And by the way, if you have questions about, you know, the book. Sure. You know, oh, they suburbs, can call, you can course. call us. You can yeah. email us. Again, our number, 888-477-9499. Our email, studio2 at org. So history was made. Yes, history was, well, you know, I turned on, I... I Turned on the Sixers game last night, just a normal Monday night game. Mm. But the thing with sports, Cherry, is you just never know what you're going to see. It's unscripted. Yeah. And in last night's game, Mm -hmm. in South Philadelphia against the San Antonio Spurs, reigning MVP Sixers center Joel Embiid made a little history. Chance at 70. Embiid. Like 70 what? 70 points yeah. in a game, Cherry Greg. 70 points. That's how much he scored. It is kind of laughable. Yeah. No Sixer had ever scored that much in a game, um, at least not wearing a Sixers uniform. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a record-setting night and uh, just an amazing accomplishment for an, a remarkable player in Joel Embiid. Pretty cool. And I, I, I'm pretty impressed. And, you know, I'm not like a big sports person, but I did see I did this story today. Yes. And um, it took 57 years for someone to outscore as a sixer, Wilt Chamberlain, who had scored 68 points. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also outscored Allen Iverson, Dr. J, and Moses Malone. I mean, that is a, a pretty good list to say you climbed over all of them. And uh, 70 points in a game. game. So 
Congratulations to Joel Embiid. Quick anecdote. Um, it was the 18th anniversary of Philly's own Kobe Bryant scoring mm. 81 yeah, points in a game, which, yeah. is, which is the second highest anyone's ever scored in a basketball game in the NBA, 81 points. And the connection to Embiid is that uh, Embiid grew up in Cameroon, mm. and he did not grow up around the game of basketball. The first time he saw basketball was as a teenager, and it was watching Kobe Bryant. And that's what inspired Aww. him to try basketball at age 15. And he has gone from... S it's it's really amazing to go from not having played basketball at age 15 to being, you know, arguably the best basketball player in the world. Um, he's now 29 years old. So, yeah, there's a little story to rest this accomplishment. And on top all of. now he has to do is take the Sixers. To Bring it the home, Joel. Championship. Bring it home. Someday soon. That's yes. a lot of sports talk for us. I Very know. Unusual. I know. That's that's all <laughs> I got. That's all I got. Let's get back to our meat and so potatoes we're gonna, policy. Here we <laughs> we're go. gonna go and talk about plastic bag bans. Uh -huh. I have about forty reusable bags in my trunk right now, Avi. That's a lot. I keep buying them because I forget to take them inside the store when I tisk, go there. Tisk, anyway, tisk. I digress. But multiple studies uh, studies have come out testing the effectiveness of plastic bag bans. Mm -hmm. On one hand, places like New Jersey, Vermont. Philadelphia, Portland, Oregon, and Santa Barbara, California, all have bag bans and have cut plastic usage by six billion bags per year. Good thing. That's good. But now there's this new study that came out this month. Looking um, at New Jersey. Yeah, looking at New Jersey specifically, questioning the effectiveness of those bans and the ban in New Jersey. Apparently, they say yes, one-use plastic bans, uh, one-use plastic bags. That use is down, but reusable bags but, require but, but. 15 to 20 times more plastic to to make. And in New Jersey, the the, the amount of plastic being used has gone up. By up, weight, up. yes. Yeah, by weight has gone up. And they found that a lot of people who you who buy the reusable bags are using them only once. Right. So the, so obviously, if you replace one type of plastic bag with a bag that requires more plastic to they, make, it's actually you not. need to reuse yes. the second one in order for there to be a benefit. Now, this is very early, right? So yes. this, it's this, only been this a year bag in New Jersey. took effect yeah. in May of 2022. Mm -hmm. So I think you would expect, at least initially, that there was going to be an uptick in plastic mm -hmm. by weight because you're replacing these lighter bags with heavier plastic bags. The idea is that over time, because you're reusing the heavier ones, that you would sort of plateau and even out. But I have to say, people have to look themselves in the mirror. Do you have a, a, a reusable plastic bag that you're right only now. using one time? <laughs> no, I keep, I just have 40 of them. I keep <laughs> buying them. But my whole thing is like there are people who are probably right. not reusing the reusables, which is a problem, which means, you know, it defeats the purpose right. of getting rid of it. It just raises use. this larger question. Yeah. This is well intended legislation. The question is, does it work? Um, but we'll have I, to see. We'll have to see, and we'll maybe have to talk about it more in detail on this show, Studio Two. Yeah. Um, something like kind of something so, we've talked yeah. about a lot of detail For recently sure, yeah. is the University of Pennsylvania. But hey, let's talk about Penn again. Mm -hmm. um, yesterday, about 100 faculty and staff staged a walkout. What they were protesting was what they feel is the growing influence of mega donors on yeah. the university. Uh, of course, donors helped stage kind of a coup at the University of Pennsylvania uh, ousting President Liz McGill recently. Mm -hmm. One of the donors who was the driving force behind this was a guy named Mark Rowan. Um, and so they were protesting sort of that, but also this letter that he had sent, which seemed to suggest that he wanted to know even more about how Penn was operating, perhaps shake up the types of programs that they offered and the way that they hire and, and all sorts of stuff. 
uh, it was couched as a list of questions, but mm-hmm. you, know, you could tell that there were suggestions embedded in the questions. Um, and it just brings up this larger question, Cherry, of, of where is the line uh, of donor influence? What should donors have a say in in a private university? And what shouldn't they have a say in? And I mean, we got to point out that in 2018, Rowan donated the single largest gift in the business school's 140-year history. So yeah. clearly, I mean, People take notice of that. He probably has a lot of influence. But we've talked about this, Avi. I mean, this is a, a real question because this this discussion that Rowan has had or these letters have been made public. But we don't really know how much big donors, how much influence they actually have on these institutions. I mean, we know, um, right, that they that they, they help. Sh- they have some influence because they give money. Right. They give money. They endow but where chairs. Does, they where is, they where help build buildings. Yeah. But. Does is there some sort of unspoken line, or maybe there needs to be a spoken line about what donors can and cannot do at a place like Penn? And what we're seeing is a, sort of a testing, I think, of how far donors can go. And I think you also have to acknowledge, generally speaking, that the donor class. I I can't quantify this, yeah. but I think it's safe to say the donor class is more politically conservative than the. The, the academic staff that at most true. universities. Mm-hmm. And so there's natural tension there. And the question is um, sort of who has the power in the yeah. dynamic. And, and of course, a lot of folks who work there, faculty, they want academic freedom. They don't want to have donors looking over their shoulders and influencing curriculum, et cetera, et cetera. But we shall see. And I hope that we talk about this more. And um, so we're going to move on to our newsmaker. Let's move on. Uh, mm-hmm. The recent snowfall across the region. Y'all saw it. Yeah. Messed up Cherry's car. <laughs> uh, you've probably noticed lots of slushy salt on the roads and the sidewalks. Of course, we're all very glad for safer streets and walkways. But the rock salt and brine mm-hmm. commonly used after a winter storm is not so great for the environment. Yeah. F- f- fact that I learned when I was today years old, road salt can hang around for decades in our waterways, contaminating groundwater and harming local ecology. And with 25 million tons of salt used every year in the United States, it's hard to ignore the problem. Joining us now is John Jackson. He's a senior research scientist at the Stroud Water Research Center in Avondale. John, welcome on into Studio Two. Uh, Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us, John. Uh, First, let's establish this. Like, what are we spreading on our roadways when it snows? Well, we call it salt, but is it salt? Is it a mix? What's the substance that's used most commonly? Most of what we're using is is some form of sodium chloride, table salt. Huh. Mm. So it's, it's either in a rock form, the rock salt you see coming out of the dump truck, or it's dissolved in water and applied as a brine, but it's usually sodium chloride. Basic stuff. Yeah. Yeah, basic and- stuff. And so give us the the life cycle of this salt from the bag or from the truck through where does it go? Like walk us through when we drop it to the ground or on the streets, where does that salt flow? Well, we apply a lot of salt, say for Pennsylvanians, somewhere between two and four hundred pounds per year in a normal winter. Last winter doesn't count. This winter we will see it goes immediately. Some of it goes down the storm drains and into the waterway. And that's where we see the big spikes of salt in the stream. But a portion of it, maybe 40%, actually infiltrates or percolates into the ground and recharges the groundwater, which happens whether it rains or it snows. But when it snows or as an ice storm, we add salt to that water. And that's one of our problems is we're replacing our freshwater 
in the groundwater with salty water. What are the ripple effects of that, John? Well, it means that we, we're, we're looking at two kinds of impacts. In the winter, when the event occurs, we see these big spikes. And uh, in some cases, the worst sites we've seen, um, we've, we've measured literally the stream, which is all freshwater, suddenly becoming as salty as seawater. Hmm. And on wow. one occasion, we've seen it being twice as salty as, the sh as seawater. So it's saltier than the ocean. It's at times, and this is just the runoff up of roads and parking lots. But then um, a lot of our work recently has been really focused on what's coming into the stream in August, September, October, November, months after we've done any de-icing, and it's still salty. Wow. Not like the spike, but it's, it's ice, it, it's salty like quite often 10 times normal, maybe as high as 100 times normal. In other words, if you went to a forested stream, you would you would see very little salt and we would have 10 to 100 times more of it in an urban suburban stream. Yeah. And there's really a direct correlation between the urbanization, the degree of urbanization, the more we urbanize, more parking lots and roads, the saltier our waterways. Mm. Yeah. And I want to read this email from Dave, who says, along with other volunteers, I've been monitoring sodium chloride levels in creeks in Abington and Sheltonham townships. Even last winter of no snow and no road salting, sodium chloride levels at some of our test sites were toxic to aquatic life. Can you talk about, you know, what is impacted? Because I've read that it can impact insect levels and other things when when you have saltier water what changes um well in general it's it's going to be two things that it, it challenges us in some cases it's just deadly it just they can't handle it because remember they live in in a very dilute world fresh water doesn't have a lot of salt in it and that's their world and when you make it salty that's why um, stream insects don't occur in the ocean and ocean invertebrates don't occur in the stream in general. It's, yeah. it's just a challenge. Um, and then the second thing is, is it's a water balance challenge, believe it or not. A lot like you and I have to pay attention to salt in our diets to keep our internal chemistry functioning properly. They have that same challenge. It's, um, where they need to not be absorbing so much salt and that's their battle. And mm -hmm. as it gets saltier, they lose more and more of those battles. So sometimes they're dead quickly, and other times it's a it's a challenge that just wears them down yeah. over days yeah. and months. Uh, John, just a minute left, but what's the alternative here? If we don't use salt to de-ice roads, what do we do? Well, there's it, it's never going to be an all or nothing. There's no pathway where we get away from using salt, but. The, the places that I see in New York and Maryland that are doing a better job are doing better jobs with mechanical removal. In other words, better plows. Hmm. They do a better job at only applying what is needed, mm -hmm. not over applying. And the third thing, Maryland's done a marvelous job at replacing rock salt with brine. They brine in the middle of the storm. They have literally cut their salt use in half. They saved $70 million just over a seven-year period just by changing to briny. So um, I know New York is trying that out. 
there there are some options mm. we we're not going to get rid of it but we can certainly slow this problem down and yeah. work on it yeah fascinating perspective in our home state of maryland stepping up i Cherry. know look at that <laughs> that was john jackson senior research scientist at stroud water research center john thanks for joining us on studio two you're welcome thank you and coming up next reporter ben harold is here to talk about the unraveling of the american dream in the suburbs be right we'll be right back Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back into Studio 2, everybody. I'm Avi wolfman And I'm Cherry Gregg. Idyllic life in the suburbs, a big, beautiful home, grassy lawn, quiet neighborhood with great schools. For most people, that dream is no longer a reality. Our guest, education journalist Benjamin Harold, has been chronicling suburbia for the past few years, looking at it through the eyes of five families across the country, outside Dallas, L.A., Atlanta, Chicago, and Pittsburgh. He explains in a new book that the burbs, they're on a decline. Ben Harold's new book, and I say new, out today. Mm. Happy Pub Day, by the way, Ben. Um, the book is called Disillusioned, Five Families and the Unraveling of America's Suburbs. Uh, Ben's with us here in Studio 2 today to explain why and how the myth of suburban life is fading. Ben, welcome to Studio 2. Thanks so much for having me. And, and you, He's a WHYY alum. I got to get that in there. Gotta it's good get to be that back. In. It's, it's good, good to, be, to back. be back. It's nice to see you. And friends, if you want to comment or you have a question for Ben, our number is 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at whyy.org. Ben, we're excited to have you here. And we wanted to sort of start this conversation because you, your books is sort of... Um, subject to this premise that the suburbs is a Ponzi scheme where one group of people get all the benefits and most of those people are white and then another group of people, people of color, come in and have to pay the piper. Explain your argument. Well, this really started for me in my hometown. So I grew up in a suburb outside of Pittsburgh called Penn Hills. And I was there in the 70s, 80s, early 90s. And it worked very well for my white family. You know, the schools were good. You just didn't have to worry about things. Things just kind of worked. Mm -hmm. The infrastructure was still mostly new, et cetera. And so I left after I graduated high school in 1994. And all of the things that I had gotten from Penn Hills allowed me to build a comfortable middle-class life somewhere else. And I really didn't think about Penn Hills much after I left. Until about 2015, I started seeing all of these headlines coming out of my hometown. The school district had run up $172 million debt. They were furloughing teachers. Mm. Property taxes were skyrocketing. Home values were stagnant. And I was like, what the heck is going on here? This is not what I associate with the suburbs. So for me, it started with going back to Penn Hills and trying to understand what was happening. And then it became very clear quickly that all the opportunities my family had kind of extracted from Penn Hills when we were there, someone else was now paying for them. And that $172 million mm -hmm. debt really put a point on it. Let's explain how this cycle works. You Mm -hmm. also compare it... um, to slash and burn agriculture, which I found to be a very evocative metaphor. So when these suburban communities are first established, and they are primarily white, uh, you talk in the book about how there's great amenities and city services, mm-hmm. but low taxes. And that sort of lurking underneath all of that 
is subsidy. So explain that part of it. Why do these communities work so well in the first phase of their lives? Because essentially they're pushing the cost of all of that infrastructure, the roads, the sewers, the schools. They're pushing the true cost of maintaining and repairing that off onto the future. So Mm -hmm. we're going to have good services, good infrastructure, and low taxes, which works really great until the bills for repairing that all start to come due. And then the thing that even complicates or kind of magnifies the dynamic, you've got to remember many of these communities grew up almost overnight. Mm-hmm. You know, they were farmland or hills, and then all of a sudden it turns into subdivisions in the space of 10 years. You know, you have this you know, really robust residential community. And so, again, for the first generations of families who are there, it's nice. You have the dream you described up front, the new house, the nice lawn, the good schools. But eventually that stuff starts to age. And the bills start to come due. And what we've seen again and again and again, not just in Penn Hills or Pennsylvania or you know, where we are, but all over the country, this cycle repeating itself of families with means who tend to be white or more affluent, see the bills starting to come due and leave. Mm-hmm. And then someone else kind of gets stuck paying for all of the opportunities that those families have already extracted. And this is the part that I was really obsessed with, and I call the the bounce theory, the people who sort of um, reaped all the benefits and then they they go someplace else. And um, talk about some of the reasons besides the bills come up. What, what, what do they tell themselves as to why they're going to leave this community? And, and it, so, it sort of coincides with people of color moving in. Yeah, it's very tied to demographic changes. And I think one thing that, you know, I learned while reporting the book that still I have to stop and remember is that suburban public schools are now majority non-white. And so that's not why a lot of those first generations of families move into a community. There's suburbs in many cases are built on this foundation of racial exclusion, the idea that we are going to reap all of these benefits for ourselves while we keep everybody else out. And so eventually those barriers come down and families move in. But in the suburbs are really kind of premised on not talking about race. It's mm. separating ourselves from race. And so what we see often is we'll say, oh, well, things are changing. Test scores are going crime. down. Test scores going down. All of those kinds of things. So this like in community after community, what I saw was this kind of like ambient urgency that just starts to permeate a town where people start to feel uncomfortable. And so historically – those families have just left and restarted the cycle somewhere new. But now that's really hard to do because of the housing market, because the demographics are changing so fast, and uh, things like water supplies and all of that. So it's a lot Where do you go at this point? So suburbs become exurbs, but at some point you run out of room, right? And you write in the book, soon to be outnumbered with no more a way to escape to, white America is suddenly face-to-face with its ghosts. It is this confrontation that will define the next few decades of American life. So explain in more detail why you think the cycle might be sort of crashing um, and then what that's going to mean for society. I think when we reach this point where you can't just keep moving further and further out, the numbers don't support it, land use patterns don't support it, eventually we have to confront and face these messes that we left behind. Yeah. And for me, that became a very personal thing. You know, I go back to Penn Hills, and like my family left a real mess there. This kind of microcosm of the larger problems was kind of concentrated in our backyard. With it all was this a kind literal of, mess. Your yeah, dad junk left behind and debris, a, a literal. And, barrels. Yeah. and you know, really kind of you know, undermining the property values on that street. 
But that street, which was almost all white when I grew up, is now 30, 40% black. And so I actually met one of the um, African-American moms who bought the house three doors down from my childhood home. And so that confrontation with our ghosts, for me, became very personal mm-hmm. because it was this wasn't some abstract thing. It was my family and me personally had reaped all of these benefits and then left this place behind. And now this woman that I got to know, we knocked on her door, we started talking, I got to know her family. And it's like, she's actually bearing the burden of that. And that became a very tricky thing for us to navigate. And if you just tuned in, we're speaking with author Ben Harold. His new book out today is titled Disillusioned, Five Families and the Unraveling of America's Suburbs. We're talking about the decline of the American suburbs. You can call us with your question or comment. The number is 888-477-9499. The email is studio2 at org. And uh, you mentioned um, the woman who lived on the street where you grew up, Bethany Smith, I believe her name is. You tell this story through the lens of five families. Bethany is one of them. Um, Talk a little bit about Bethany and then just give us a, why, why choose these families to sort of explain your theory of this Ponzi scheme that is the suburbs? Well, I met Bethany, you know, three doors down from my childhood home. And so she had just bought that house. And she went, came into Penn Hills for very much the same reasons my family did. She wanted to build generational wealth. She wanted good schools. She wanted to not have to worry about things. But she became very quickly aware of like, oh, wait, why are my property taxes going up? Why is my son being treated this way in school? And so one of the the stories that ended up really just like um, impacting both of us was I thought a lot about my third grade year where I was kind of a distracted kid, I would get bored, I would start drawing on the desk when I finished my work. And instead of punishing me, my teacher actually brought in a typewriter from home. And she said, when you get bored, you go on the typewriter. And so that became my first newspaper job. That's how I got started. I started <laughs> wow. up to date with Room 38. Mm-hmm. And so it was just like this grace and opportunity that just flowed towards me without me having to do anything. But when I observed Bethany's son at Penn Hills Elementary School in second grade, it was a very different circumstance. And so there was just, you know, the teaching force was still almost all white even though the student body was now majority black, teachers would say, you know, pretty upfront, of like, I just don't understand where these kids are coming from. I don't know how to reach them. The things I used to do don't work. And so you see this kind of punitive disciplinary environment that becomes a real kind of threat to a child's well-being, particularly as they get older. And you chronicle that in Penn Hills, and then there's a, a, a district in suburban Atlanta mm-hmm. where that same dynamic plays out. Um, but I wanted to go back to, to Bethany Smith, who uh, lives on the block where you grew up. Um, and she's, she's fascinating to me, um, Mm -hmm. because you kind of lay out this whole theory for her about what's happening. And it's not like she whole cloth rejects it, but she doesn't whole cloth accept it either. And I think pushes you to maybe, I don't know if it's check your cynicism or, or see her in a different way. How do you explain how, how Bethany Smith, um, who you believe is sort of like getting, inheriting this burden actually sees her her situation. Well, I think the first thing for me was I didn't fully realize or grasp or appreciate the the position she was in where like that was she had just bought a house. Like yeah. that's where she was going to be and so it's like I don't have time for all of this doom and gloom. I yeah. need to make this work for my child. And so and there was a lot of that energy, not just in Penn Hills, but in other suburban communities that are struggling, too. Like, there are still people trying to make these places work. But it reached a point where Bethany told me, like, listen, I'm very uncomfortable with you coming in here as a white man and asking all of these questions and getting all this story and essentially repeating that same thing. Like, you're taking my story away and you're going to profit from it and I'm not right. going to get anything out of it. And so her kind of checking me or challenging me in that way, it really forced me to kind of get out of just kind of analyzing things intellectually from a distance and kind of get into that confrontation with my own past and the past of my community as well. 
Yeah, it, it, I, I, you invited Bethany to write the epilogue in the book, um, which Avi was like, did you read the epilogue? It was it's so good. good. It's really good. <laughs> and she writes, there are plenty of black folks who migrated here to find comfort and contentment. And she's talking about Penn Hills. She says, a lot of white folks don't care for our presence. But we, but here we are, buying homes, paying taxes, and getting involved with politics, the school board, sports, and business. She goes on to say, we want the same deal that the suburbs gave white families like Ben. Um, you, you talk about, I mean, there's, there's so many different stories here. And one I want to pivot to is that of the family in Texas, um, the, the Beckmans. Beckers. 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 I, I, sorry, the Beckers. And um, I want you to talk about their their story a little bit. Uh, you use the Becker family from that suburb and they decide that things are getting uncomfortable and they want to leave. And, and I liken this to Bethany's story because they're one of the reasons why families like Bethany don't get a chance to reap the benefits. So can you talk about those the folks like the Beckers who decide to get out. Yeah, so the Beckers are a, a middle-aged white couple, um, very conservative politically and culturally, um, and pretty well-to-do. They actually met when they were bankruptcy consultants working on the Enron yeah. collapse. <laughs> and so in the early 2000s, they move into Plano, Texas, getting ready to start a family. They're just married, the same suburban dream and deal. And they think, okay, we can just buy this house. It's a quarter mile from the local school, which is really good, and we can set it and forget it. But by the time their son is ready to start first grade, the demographics of the school down the street have totally flipped. So now it's uh, two-thirds black, brown, and Asian. And so they start their son there in first grade, and they're just very unhappy with it. They feel like he's not getting paid attention to. And so they start this kind of journey. of like, where can we find a community and a school system that is going to give us this old suburban dream that we still want to find but feels like it's vanishing around the world? around the country. And so they actually end up moving out to the exurbs north of Dallas to a community called Lucas that was really still just being built. And so it's the kind of place where you have like 5,000 foot McMansions on, you know, two acre lots. And, um, and so they're very happy at first when they move in there. But when I started learning more about the kind of underpinnings of the community, like the, the zoning code was very exclusionary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The school district did all of these kinds of things to kind of manage its population. So all of these kind of techniques and strategies to manage who we, who was welcome in suburbia and who has mm-hmm. not kind of made it good for them at first, but then COVID hits and they feel like even this place that was like they had to pay almost a million dollars to buy into, yeah. even this place no longer delivers what we thought we were getting in suburbia. They can't outrun whatever they're trying to outrun. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a fascinating development mm-hmm. in the book. We're talking with Ben Harold, uh, author of Disillusioned, Out Today, Five Families in the Unraveling of America's Suburbs. If you want to chime in, 888-477-9499 or studio2 at org. I know a lot of you are listening. You live in suburbs. Maybe you're, you're buying this theory. Maybe you're not. <laughs> um, but I want to go back to um, Lucas, Texas, the Lovejoy mm-hmm. School District where the Beckers are. And, you know, one of the ways of maintaining racial exclusivity in the first generation of the suburbs were policies that were explicitly racist, redlining mm-hmm. policies, uh, racial covenants. Um, but as you mentioned, there are ways to maintain exclusivity now that appear to be race and class neutral. And in this town of Lucas, Texas, they have a weird thing going on with the sewers. Sewers mm-hmm. come up a lot in this book, by the way. Um, <laughs> uh, explain that and how sort of like infrastructure policy can influence who lives where. So my very first visit to the Lovejoy School District, I went on this tour that they give of the high school. 
and it's this big, beautiful building. There's an engineering wing, there's a visual arts wing. But the demographics of this school district are very different than the demographics, say, in Plano or Allen, which are next door. So, you know, Lovejoy is still 75% white, less than 3% poor. None of the kids are learning English. And so I asked the person who was giving me the tour, I said, why do you think the demographics here are so different? And she just looked at me and she said, septic tanks. And I was like, what are you talking about? And so, but the way it works is the way that they very intentionally in the 1990s and early 2000s, they set up the community to say the whole 17 square mile area served by this school district, it's only going to be residential. So there's no retail, there's no service workers, there's, you know, only people who can afford really expensive homes are going to live here. Those homes have to be on at least an acre and sometimes two acres. So these are really expensive homes that we're talking about. And we aren't going to do public sewers. So every... Um, home has to have its own private sewage treatment or septic tank. And the woman on this tour, she looked at me, and this was like a selling point. She said, and the upshot of that is there's not a single child in this school district who lives in an apartment. Mm. Wow. And that is sort of modern-day uh, racial segregation undercover in, in, yep. in, in sewers. And so one of the things you talk about is that th- there's a cost to this separation, though. And it's very expensive. And And you sort of foreshadow the downfall of Lovejoy in this in this way. Could you explain how, you know, how expensive it is and and what the cost is when you pull yourself out of school districts? Yeah, and Lovejoy School District and that community actually did that very literally because it's a small place. And so for years and years and years, the children who lived in that community would actually go to neighboring Allen, Texas for high school. But as Allen started to grow and diversify, the community in Lovejoy was like, no, we need to pull our kids back. We want to have them in the environment we want them with, with the other children we want them to be with who live here in our community. So they decided they're going to build their own high school. But that's expensive. So they end up taking out tens and tens of millions of dollars in debt to build new buildings, to offer all of these amenities. And again, it works for a while. But what you see very quickly started to happen right around 2018, 2019, is this the math just didn't add up. So all of a sudden, this district that's supposed to be one of the best in Texas is running million, $2 million operating deficits, having to cut things, and then actually reaches a point where it only has three elementary schools, and it has to close one of them. And the people in the community are like, they're kind of stunned to flabbergasted what's happening. And one actually wrote, he said, this shouldn't happen in a community that has this much money. And I think that is the sentiment that a lot of folks in those kind of exclusive exurban enclaves are really now experiencing. Wow. The question of what happens next is mm-hmm. very, very difficult to answer. Mm-hmm. But I do think about this idea um, that, you know, we have sort of invented new ways in our society to create racial separation. And that's been the pattern for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And when you can no longer do that, the, of course, the question is what happens to a society that has been built on the bedrock of that for a long, long, long time? And you talk about that sort of that coming down the road. Um, But I wonder if you have any guesses about how that actually plays out. One of the communities that I focus on in the book is Compton, California, which again, Mm -hmm. we have this kind of, for for two decades now, we've thought of it kind of synonymously with urban blight and urban problems. But Compton actually has this really rich suburban history, and it was a pioneer in racially exclusive covenants. It was nearly uh, all white right up until the 1950s. Actually, George the, Bush lived there. The Bush I was family shocked. lived there, yeah. <laughs> you don't think of the Bushes in Compton in the same word, but they lived yeah. there, and it was the place where families like theirs would go in the 40s and 50s. But so what becomes powerful about Compton is two things. So one, this cycle that I'm describing, all of it already happened there. It started after the Watts riots. 
1965, um, just tremendous white flight, capital disinvestment. And so for a while, you have this community. It's the largest black-run community west of the Mississippi, lots of resources. They're trying to make it work. But the debt, the infrastructure, just the kind of economic model just doesn't work. And, and so it, by it the bottoms 70s, out. Yeah. It, it bottoms out. But what's powerful now is that two, three decades after the bottom kind of fell out, you see in the school district starting to kind of put together this new vision of what a 21st century suburbia could look like. So the family that I followed there was an undocumented uh, parent from Mexico, and their son was a fourth grader when I met him. And he was just doing the most amazing work and could really feel from the top of the school district down to the classroom teacher, everyone was on the same page, that these are the kids that have the, have the promise that we need in order to figure our way out of the challenges that we now have. So a lot of the work that was happening in that school was around how do we imagine something new? Yeah, I, I think about can we really have a truly integrated uh, community? And that's what I think people have this vision of, but it never seems to work out. We have an email um, from Mark who says, it's no longer moving to suburban community. They are cost prohibitive for average citizens. It's exclusively through price of entry. Um, that's what Mark had to say. Um, so I, I want to ask you that, pie in the sky. Could we really have truly integrated suburbs? Is that the next step? One of the other communities I went to is Evanston, Illinois. So this yeah. is a progressive college town just north of Chicago where they have been very intentionally and actively trying to maintain an integrated suburban community for 50 plus years, starting in the schools. And so in many ways, I went there expecting that they were going to be the answer to your question. Like we could look at what Evanston did and figure out how other communities could mm -hmm. do. But what we saw was this kind of like liberal progressive divide that we now see at a national level, like in the Democratic uh, you know, uh, presidential race starting yeah. to come up. That was really happening on a local level where you had kind of this older, whiter, more liberal establishment saying, well, we just kind of need to tinker around the edges, but this is still working. But the mom who I followed was a multiracial mom with, who's an activist. And she's like, my son was in first grade and getting called racial slurs on the playground. And I'm not here for that. We're not going to just sweep that stuff under the rug anymore. And so there's this kind of confrontation that plays out that in many ways ends up with Evanston retreating from its kind of commitment to racial balance and integration instead of kind of maintaining that every school in the, in the community will have 18 to 25 percent black students. What they say is we're going to rebuild the neighborhood school in the black part of Evanston. And if we don't have racial balance, we don't have racial balance. Mm. But we want our kids in our community to have their own school. It's so interesting. You think you're going to Evanston for the answers. And in some ways, you end up in Compton with some of the answers exactly. you're looking mm -hmm. for. But look, there are no perfect answers. And there's a lot more to discuss. Unfortunately, we're out of time, Ben. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today on Studio Two. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. That is uh, Ben Harold, former WHYY education reporter and author of a brand new book, Disillusioned, Five Families in the Unraveling of America's Suburbs. You can catch him tonight at the Free Library at 7.30. And coming up, CBS News Philadelphia anchor Aziza Shuler is here with us talking about her journey with alopecia. Stick with us. Welcome back to Studio Two. I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. And I'm Cherry Gregg. At the end of last year, a local news anchor here in Philadelphia made a bold move. She said, I don't want to hide any longer and I want everyone to see me. Aziza Schuler took off her wig and told CBS News viewers that she is living with alopecia, an autoimmune disease that causes hair loss. As you know, Cherry, because yes. you've done this job mm -hmm. on camera, folks, you really put yourself out there with your appearance to be scrutinized by everybody. So it takes a lot of courage to show off a different look that people might not be accustomed to. 
Luckily, Aziza has received mostly positive feedback since then, and she's with us today to talk about her experience and what drove her to reveal her true self. CBS News Philadelphia anchor and reporter Aziza Schuler, welcome to Studio Two. Thank you. So good to be here. First of all, I just want to say you're gorgeous. Thank you. So are you. And um, <laughs> I was in the lobby of an of a building one uh-huh. Saturday, and I looked up and saw you on screen. And oh, I was wow. like, oh, can y'all turn this up? Who is this <laughs> person who had this beautiful, smiling face? And I have just wanted to, to find out more about your story since uh, that day. But I, I want to go back to your big reveal. Mm-hmm. What pushed you to that place? Because you wore wigs for years and years and years. Right. What put you in the place where you said, you know what? I'm not doing that anymore. Yeah, I think it was just spending most, I would say, half of my life white knuckling through it and just accepting that I was going to live in hiding. And I call it hiding because I was literally hiding. No one knew. Um, From many people with alopecia, of course, you may wear a wig, but um, some people in your life may know. Most of the people in my life did not know. So it was something that I was hiding and made an effort to cover up every day. And it became to it started to become more so like a burden on me. So you felt the stress yes. of, of of not being out there. And uh, we have a clip, actually, of you with Yuki Washington after you, I love you uh, revealed this to the first time <laughs> uh, to, awesome. to CBS Philly viewers. Let's hear that moment. And here she is live, a beautiful woman inside and out. I'm so Thank proud you. of you. Better come Thank here. You. <laughs> oh, indeed. indeed. This is me. This, this is, is me. you, a yes. beautiful you. How do you feel? I feel free. I feel Good. amazing. I feel free. Yeah, and I said, this is me, because that was me not only reintroducing myself to our viewers, but claiming it for myself. This is me. This is who I am. This is who I've always been. Um, I was just afraid to really step into her. Yeah, and what was the feedback after that? The feedback was positive. Um, I think for many of us who have alopecia, we feel alone, Mm -hmm. Um, especially because, as I mentioned, most of us are concealing it. as a child, I didn't know anyone who had alopecia. I didn't, I couldn't turn on the TV and see women who were bald and embracing their baldness, whether that was because of alopecia or a choice that they made. So, um, yeah, I just think that I think that um, I wanted to own who I am and be a representation for so many other women, men, and children. Um, yeah, so I, I think I think it was important to the viewers, but to people who are dealing with that to see someone who looked like them. So most people were impacted by it in a very strong way. Mm -hmm. Like I received thousands of messages. I even, I went to an event in DC at my high school and there were people that I knew in high school who came up to me and told me, I suffered with alopecia as well. People that I would have never thought. Uh, So I think just me revealing that and owning it and stepping into it, other people felt like even if they're not ready to embrace being bald, they are ready to um, accept that they have alopecia and mm-hmm. that they're not alone. Hmm. Yeah, it's funny. I had a coin patch in the front of my head. <laughs> yeah. And and it just, all the hair went away. Then it grew back eventually. And it was this very, sh- I didn't even know what alopecia was. Right. So, you know, dermatologists told me about it. So I want to talk about sort of like the, the process you did, you used for years to cover it up. Yes. How much energy did that take? Because your alopecia 
sort of started when you were like 12 years old? Yeah, so my the form of alopecia that I have is alopecia areata, which is an autoimmune disease. So mm-hmm. generally, alopecia just means hair loss, and that can come in any many forms, m- male pattern baldness or hair loss triggered by um, tension at the scalp. Mm-hmm. Um, but mine was an autoimmune, is an autoimmune disease. And it usually presents itself as a bald spot, like a clean bald yeah. spot that'll mm. just randomly show up. And it's unpredictable, which is very menacing because you don't know when this will happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how mine presented itself, a bald spot. One day I woke up touching my hair and I felt a bald spot. And from that point, maybe within months, I was completely bald. Wow. wow. Yes. And you wore wigs during that time. Yeah. I did. Um, that was the only way I knew to push through. Um, and you were you were young at the time. You were twelve years old. Yes. Right? So I was a twelve year. I was a twelve year old. We're not all brimming with confidence. Going at that into age. No. yeah, going into my hard. teenage years yeah. wearing yeah. wigs, and I, I you can only imagine how uncomfortable that might be, especially going into junior high school wearing a wig when all of your none of your peers are wearing wigs. Um, Do you remember how you felt about it at the time? Can you go back and remember? Like, was it on your mind day to day? Uh, it, course, was, yeah. it was, Of course, of course. It's like wearing a hat almost. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's a false representation of who you are, and you're putting on a shield almost to leave the house every single day. So um, it became a part of my identity, but it was also at a point in my life where your identity is so crucial. You're mm-hmm. becoming who you think you are. And um, I didn't know who I was without the wig. I just knew I wanted to wear the wig to make me feel comfortable, almost Mm -hmm. like a comfort blanket. And um, I was never really taught to accept who I was with alopecia. Yeah. And and this makes me think this is not just about hair, because there are so many things that people carry that they hide, Mm -hmm. that they don't want anyone to know. And I just wonder, how were you able to have friends and when and family members? They don't even they didn't even know. How were you able to keep that secret? And how much energy did that take? It took a lot of energy. It took so much energy that there was always a piece of me people didn't know. Um, it, it hindered me from being able to connect with people in the way that I wanted to. So I never really had deep relationships because I was afraid to let people all the way in um, because that was something that I was putting a wall up. Mm. Even if you think it's as small as hair, that was a part of my identity that I was not familiar with. And when you're not totally embracing your identity, no one can really get to know who you really are but beyond the surface. Hmm. Mm. So I just had surface level relationships with friends, with family, um, anyone I would meet because I was afraid to let them in. I was afraid to be judged. I was afraid of being questioned about um, my hair. You know, it's the it's ripple so, effects of that. Yeah, are, are it's tremendous. something that goes yeah. deeper. There's layers to it yeah. than just the physical appearance. And that's why I say alopecia, it's for me, it's an autoimmune disease, but it doesn't necessarily affect your health. It doesn't actually affect my health at all, um, but it's more so a psychological your effect. Your mental health, for yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me ask you about, because there's a, there's a television news industry side of this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you decided that you wanted to not wear the wig on air, you had a conversation with your bosses yes. beforehand. How yes. did that go? Um, what were you expecting going into <laughs> that conversation? It went really well. Um, 
So I that surprise you? Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Well, I had already made up my mind before I went to my bosses. Like I was already planning it out. Like how am I going to go to work bald one day? with people seeing a completely different Aziza than they saw the day before. Um, So I'd already accepted, okay, this is what I want to do. It's just a matter of how do I want to go about this. And initially, my plan was to do a story for Alopecia Awareness Month. And I wasn't planning on being a part of the story. I just wanted to interview other women in Philadelphia who are dealing with this condition, as well as interviewing a few doctors. Um, And I brought that idea to my executive producer, as well as my news director. And at the end of the conversation, I felt like I wasn't being completely transparent. So I revealed to them, I want to do this story because I have alopecia, I'm bald, and I no longer want to wear wigs. Mm. And they were completely on board. Really? Which, it was, it was a, a tad bit shocking because I, I, I think I expected more questions or right, right. Uh, just more conversation around it. And they just were like, let's do it. So do you think that is just a byproduct of having great bosses? Or do you think there is something changing in the TV news business yeah, around the- beauty standards, um, sort of widening the spectrum of what's, you know, quote unquote, acceptable on television? And hair. And yeah. changing and, and, and acceptance hair, yeah. of hair, yeah. I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I am fortunate to have two female bosses. Mm. Uh, My news director and general manager are both women, and they're champions for women and champions for representation and diversity. So that was one thing. But also, I do think in our industry, the paradigm is shifting. Um, Beauty is all-encompassing. It's not just about having a standard traditional look. I think we're moving away from that and more into a direction of everyone. You, you, you're you just bringing your most authentic self to the job. It's like, does TV news look like the world? Or right. is it a mirror or yeah. is it sort of like a distortion of the world? And you're saying maybe it's moving more toward mirror in a sense. Exactly. Yeah, okay, yeah. interesting. And I want to ask you this last question um, because... Uh, does you, like being yourself without your wig, without all of that covering, how does that impact you, your ability to do your job? Because I I wonder you doing an alopecia story sitting here like you are now versus doing it the other way. I feel like I can relate to people more because I'm wholeheartedly being who I am. And as journalists, we expect that of the people we're interviewing. Mm. We expect them to be honest. We expect them to um, share their most vulnerable stories with us. And if we're not doing that, how can we That's a great point. You know, appreciate that from someone else? That is Aziza Schuler. Thank you so much for that. A reporter and anchor at CBS News Philadelphia. Thank you for being with us today as well. Thank you for having me. That's it for the show. Yeah, that is. That was Uh, a great way to to wrap up the show. Nice button on the show today. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Marie Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks engineered today's program from Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Avi Wolfman-Aaron. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Thank you all for joining us today.